back in the mid nineties in New York city, it seemed as though everyone had a sketch comedy group. So I thought, Hey, maybe I should have a sketch comedy group. So I teamed up with someone my sister had met. I don't know that they were good friends, but she knew him and knew that he was also searching for uh, a partner to team up with to do sketch comedy. And he had an in uh, with he was friends with the owner of a diner, the Bendix Diner, which um, there were two Bendix Diners at the time. Um, and the owner, his name is Aton. Um, in one of them, he actually was building a stage specifically for my friend to perform at. So we would have a free venue to be able to work our craft. We were both involved in and egged on by the improvisational scene, which was just starting to flourish and change. Um, because uh, a group called the Upright Citizens Brigade had landed in New York from Chicago. And unbeknownst to anyone in New York, these people were already geniuses right out of the gate and were fated for stardom. So they came and they basically changed improv from the sort of cheesy, hey, throw out a suggestion and we'll sing about it and you'll awkwardly laugh because we're doing it. Not because anything coming out of our mouths is funny, but it's off the cuff and so you're nervous for our sake and laughing. <laughs> that seemed to be what, what comedy was. Comedy sports, you know, they called it. Um, but these guys came in and, and did this long-form uh, comedy straight out of uh, Chicago and made it look like a magic act, made it look as though there was a coherent plot um, that it had to have been written and they were hysterical and therefore their shows were hysterical. So anyone in comedy in New York at the time was way into the Upright Citizens Brigade and they had a, a sketch comedy show that they would do and followed by um, a free improv set. And that's how we all sort of came to know that they were these genius improvisers because their sketch comedy show was pretty good, but their improv was uh, just beyond belief. And the original group was Amy Poehler, Matt Besser, Matt Walsh, and uh, Ian Roberts. But then they'd have people come in uh Steve Colbert before he became Steve Colbert uh Andy Richter Janine Garofalo would do monologues Tina Fey before she was Tina Fey you know all of these absolute geniuses would come in and do this and and we would just sit there crying laughing um so i became friends with uh Amy and Matt Walsh and um, Ian Roberts, to an extent, uh, Matt Besser never really got to know. I don't know why. He just seemed kind of uh, grumpy <laughs> and standoffish. Uh, but but uh, they were friendly to us, and, and in fact, um, I ended up taking improv courses with them. And um, I think Ian may have helped us. I can't remember. Definitely Matt Walsh uh, helped us with the sketch comedy giving us pointers and all that sort of stuff. Um, so it was this great feel-good vibe in New York, in the comedy scene. It was this this brand new thing, This um, these amazing people teaching it. Uh, 
and all too willing to tutor us and mentor us. And, and so we launched our sketch comedy show, which was called pay my rent because well, it was a, a play on rent, the uh, musical, but also, uh, because people should pay our rent. <laughs> they should, they should be giving us money for this. Uh, so we did this and, uh, you know, we did auditions and all that fun stuff. And, um, uh, the, the problem was the, the guy I was working with was a little bit, uh, crazy in a Tom Cruise angry way, if that makes sense. And he eventually brought in a guy he knew who I guess he said he was friends with, but they sure weren't friendly to each other. Uh, but he was Joel Schumacher's nephew or something. So it was like, oh, oh, here's our in. Cause you know, Joel Schumacher, huge in the improv scene. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, well, I guess Batman and Robin was a comedy, right? <laughs> Maybe not on purpose, but I digress. Uh, so we were to be writing and, uh, together me and this other guy, uh, but we just didn't see eye to eye on what was funny and why. And it, it's an interesting thing when you're in a collaborative effort like that and you see all the warning signs right up front, but you so want it to work. Everybody so wants it to work because they want the comedy to happen. They want the magic to happen. They want the show to happen. It's about the show that we all overlook our foibles and our problems with each other that then eventually destroy us as a group and make us never want to see each other again. Right? Like, but that's the nature of ambition. When you want something, when you're so hungry for something to make it work, you'll do anything. You'll do anything to make it work. And then it becomes this, uh, Frankenstein's monster, right? Out of your control. And actually that's uh, kind of what happened to the improv scene. Um, it started off with a whole bunch of innocent, really, nice, funny, just really intelligent, brilliant people um, who came together to want because they wanted to learn this craft. And then it became kind of culty within itself uh, because a lot of what we were learning was like how to listen properly and how to give, how to give gifts, how to never be selfish to always be in service to the other. And all these things really touched on a sort of deep spiritual level for a lot of people. And, um, and they became, they, they started talking the lingo and it became like Chicago improv turned everyone into Zen Buddhists or something for a while in New York. But then, but then the ambition kicked in because people at Saturday night live, people at, uh, Conan O'Brien, you know, they started taking notice of everybody and people, VH1 was another one, you know, where they would start plucking people to do skits or start plucking people to do, uh, talking head bits in the case of VH1. So it, it morphed from this, this, this complete, innocent, wonderful thing into this culty, but still kind of wonderful secret society into this greedy, clicky, what can you do for me situation. And in fact, I had a friend who actually told me when it was clear that, that I was, um, 
losing my sense of ambition for all of this, uh, that he no longer wanted to be friends with me because he, he didn't have the time. He couldn't afford to be friends with anyone um, who he thought couldn't help him in the business. I mean, he literally told me this. I, uh, I don't want to be friends with you because I don't think that you can help me move my career along. And that was it. We were no longer friends after that. This was made doubly pathetic by the fact that the scene had not yet changed into the career maker. Uh, I mean, this was just prior to um, Conan O'Brien and Saturday Night Live and all and all those guys, um, you know, looking at this scene. Um, in fact, I got out of there just before they started doing it. So just before it would actually pay off <laughs> to be in the improv scene, I decided to leave. <laughs> Maybe they were waiting for me to leave. I don't know. But the point is, uh, this guy was uh, dumping friends, or at least dumping me, who couldn't help his career before there was any real career to be had. Although maybe he intuited something big was on its way. Who knows? Um, so it became an a-hole creating machine is what it did for some people. And it lost its way. And that's kind of what ambition does. It takes this this good, innocent enthusiasm, this energy to create. And if you don't stick with that, you go off the beaten path into more and more ambition. And soon enough, you find yourself in the layer of greed, fighting the dragon of self-aggrandizement. Or, well, embracing the dragon. But what is that? Why do we do this to ourselves? Let's explore that a bit on this episode. I'll use myself as an example, of course, but you play along with your own life, right? Replace my story with your story and see where it goes without judgment. Don't judge yourself or anyone else. Let's just do this together with a lot more echo on the track. When I look at what my ambition used to be back when I had ambition, (laughs) uh, it was to be in television. It was to write and perhaps even perform. Um, It was to write and direct movies. I suppose I wanted to write comedy and maybe even perform comedy, like on Saturday Night Live, something along those lines, for television, but for movies. uh, I wanted to do comedy, but I also wanted to do horror and sci-fi and pretty much everything, lots of things, and wanted to direct. And I look at why, why did I want those things? Because I don't want them now. And I don't want them now because I have so deconstructed myself that such things fall away. But for those many, many of us who, uh, who don't do that, we also have ambitions fall away because, uh, you know, we change, we grow. It's not the lack of self but the morphing of self, the aging of self, and, and all of that uh, is, is another reason why. It's, in fact, the prevalent reason why we change directions, for instance, in our careers or in our creative interests. So what is this about? What is, this, what is the root of it? Well, let's see. I wanted to be in television. I wanted to write. And... I know I I had a talent for writing, 
that I had harnessed uh, early on in high school. I wrote my first book. I didn't publish it then, but I wrote it then. And I knew my circle of friends, at least, seemed to find me funny. So I kind of had a knack for the jokes or the at least a sense of humor, um, if not formal written jokes. So I put these things together and I wanted to to be somebody. And I moved to New York straight out of college. I met my sister there, who was an actress at the time. Uh, and we were going to make a go of it. Her mainly on the stage and me in television. And then eventually I dreamed movies. Um, so this was the dream. And of course, socially, we put pressure on ourselves to to make something of our lives, to be somebody. And, and that means career, whatever the career is. So, of course, that's what we do socially. And so that's pressure number one that creates ambition. Um, and also, ours is a capitalist society uh, that worships competition. Not just competition, but I mean, honestly, uh, destroying the competition and being number one. Um, so that sort of thrust to be the cream of the crop to be acknowledged, to be the only one acknowledged uh, as a way to make your mark um, and sustain your mark for whatever reason that's important is a huge factor. And, and why do we do that socially? Well, we do that socially uh, because we fear, we fear death, right? We say that, um, we want immortality. And in the arts, it's, uh, it's kind of the same thing. We want this, this, you know, this false sense of immortality. If you can live on, if your name can live on. Um, it used to be if your bloodline lived on, you would have kids, right? And they would take the name and, and carry on the traditions of the family and the family, the family name and all that. Um, at least the males would carry the family name. So bloodline used to be important, and that's... You know, for some people that still is, but uh, mainly that's given way to just good old fashioned star power recognition. So socially, societally, I guess that is a factor. You want to be somebody, be on TV, be creating TV, be creating movies. But also deeper than that is um, the love of telling stories uh, and all of that. But what is the what is the drive to feel the com the compulsion to feel as though you need to tell a story that your voice needs to be heard. That does go back to, uh, the fear of death. We want recognition. We want to be considered important. Um, or on a very basic level, we want to be heard, right? We want to be seen. We want to be heard. We want to be acknowledged that is equated with being alive in uh, a culture that promotes ambition to the degree that ours does. But also, stepping away from culture and looking at the personal, my sister, uh, ever since I was little, was always a star, you know? Um, she was uh, an actor from forever, <laughs> since I can remember. And she would go to auditions and all that, and she was always a star pupil. And I was always sort of treated as the black sheep 
And I think I was the younger brother and I wanted to emulate her. Um, I'd always wanted to emulate her. I took ballet classes when I was a little kid because she took ballet. I mean, I just wanted to be my sister. I remember following behind her, mimicking her, uh, the way she walks and all of that as we would walk to school and she would be upset with me and she'd say, stop that. And um, I think she had this, that, that older sister thing that happens where you were both repulsed by and protective of uh, your your little brother who like wants to be you and imitates you, but then there's that friction. Um, it's a weird thing being siblings, right? When you're a kid. Um, but anyway, so I wanted to I wanted to be my sister. I didn't. I don't know that I. Maybe I guess perhaps I was competing with her for affection from the parents. I mean that's certainly true at a young age, um, in an overt way, and it probably carries over. Well, it probably carries over into adulthood, let's face it. So that is certainly a factor. Uh, and then, of course, there is seeing the parents. And my parents never really pressured me to be anything specifically because I was always treated like the black sheep. Um, not in a not in a negative way in the you know but just that i was always told because my grades were bad in school and this sort of thing that i was much smarter than i let on and that i must be bored in classes and um so it was kind of like i was acknowledged to be the troubled student but also not because i was dumb but because of other factors boredom uh, upset with the parents for their divorce, upset with uh, having been molested. You know, there are all of these sorts of excuses thrown there that may be true. And in my case, um, they were true to extents. But the overwhelming factor was their acknowledgement um, seemed to be permission. <laughs> permission to be this way. At least that's how I interpreted it growing up. So... My parents gave me permission, essentially, unwittingly, not on purpose, uh, to do poorly. Because in the back of my mind, I was always told I was doing poorly by choice. And so I could just choose away from it. And in some not-so-subtle way, maybe this even gets into white privilege, white male privilege, right? Like, I didn't even have a society that was telling me uh, I was a failure, even when I was failing, um, because there was no repercussion. There wasn't one with my parents for failing, and there there certainly wasn't going to be one job-wise uh, when I finally graduated from whatever I graduated. It turns out I graduated from college. At least in terms of my feelings about myself, right? Like, there may have been actual repercussions in the work world if I never went to college, but I didn't feel like there were going to be um, because society doesn't tell me that, and my parents weren't telling me that. And so I wonder if even part of the benefit of that, I guess, would be that I, um, because I don't see failure as failure, I don't see it as the end of me as a person in society or that I'm going to end up homeless in some, you know, something like that, um, that I could afford to, to dream big in a creative field of which there is massive unemployment, right? And heartbreak and rejection. 
Like in order to really embrace a field that has massive unemployment and heartbreak and rejection, you've really got to be delusional <laughs> in thinking that you're going to make it. And then sometimes you win the lottery and you, you turn out to be correct. But, um, but this sense of having to make it and striving and wanting to be somebody also stems from being the black sheep. So it's got its pluses. It's got its minuses wanting to, uh, to not be acknowledged as a failure, even though being a failure doesn't really mean failure in my mind. Um, there's still a percentage of it that does. I mean, over overall, overwhelmingly not, but there's still the part where uh, you want to be acknowledged as a somebody from your parents, um, from your peers, from your siblings. And all of that has to do with how you feel about yourself or had to do with how I felt about myself. But I think overwhelmingly also it has to do with uh, again, this fear of death, which comes up uh, when the fear of death is repressed, it comes up in these other ways. In these, uh, it bubbles up as fear of not being a somebody, fear of not being recognized, fear of not being heard, fear of not leaving your mark. Um, but also, uh, in that, it comes up as when you are heard. When the self is heard, then the self is being confirmed and legitimized, right? Uh, so the fear of death is really the fear of death of self. It's not just the fear of physical death, but the fear of the death of the sense of self. And so the sense of self wants to, strives to, be a somebody to prove its worth. You want to prove your worth. I wanted to prove my worth. I didn't know I was doing this, but there it is. Uh, promoting yourself and putting yourself out there and trying to be famous is a great way to run from yourself. It's a great way to ignore your problems. And if I have to look at, hmm, who did this in my family uh, of my mom and dad to pattern on, it would be my dad. My dad uh, was an interim minister and politically active. I think both my parents were politically active, but my dad really uh, talked and ranted about it more, about uh, politics more to me, I think, than my mom. So I probably patterned off him more. Um, uh, an interim minister who went around to, uh, he was a United Church of Christ Protestant minister, and he would go to these sort of failing churches, at least the way he tells it, and uh, resuscitate them um, and then hand them off to someone else. Whether that's true or not, or he just got kicked around from church to church, at least that's what I thought was the truth because I believed what he said. So, and he would go in on, you know, like Christmas and tell, uh, he'd go to these rich upper crust white churches and say, listen, you're not doing enough for the homeless when what they want to hear is like the nice, happy, for instance, Christmas sermon, right? They want that nice, pleasant Christmas sermon. And he would tell them, you're not doing enough to help the homeless. What are we all doing here? Kind of thing. Um, so he was a very uh, liberal, very um, justice, progressive oriented minister. But 
as it turns out, and I didn't find this out until my fresh, the end of my freshman year of college. Um, he was also an alcoholic. He was a rageaholic. I knew that. Uh, he would rage and slam things around and yell and all that. And I guess all that sort of stems from alcoholism, but I would also argue narcissism. And uh, so seeing this growing up, um, seeing him take the stage and hold a captive audience, plus having the arts in my blood, probably genetically in some way. I mean, uh, my grandmother... And preaching, maybe. I mean, here I am on a radio, right? Um, and it turns out my uh, my my dad's brother, my uncle, was a Unitarian minister. My sister was thinking about becoming Unitarian minister. So was my cousin, my uncle's daughter, thinking about becoming Unitarian minister at one point. So you got that thing going on. And then uh, my grandmother and my mother, I believe, were both English teachers. And here I am writing. So, you know my sister being an actress. I mean, it, it's all something in there is there, right? Genetically. I can remember a day in middle school where my neighbor Dave was over. I remember my dad actually wrote a book. I'm just, I guess I forgot about that until just now. He wrote a book uh, having to do with dragons and fantasy stuff, I think. And he wrote the entire book and then he saw, he, I think he was going to get it published and, Maybe a publisher told him this. I'm not sure. Or maybe he just read in a synchronicity, read the book himself, but essentially found that the exact same story had already been told. The book had been written and man, was he upset. He was really disappointed and had to shelve the book. Um, so I guess I, I saw writing in that way too. And I remember in middle school, uh, I thought, oh, my dad wrote a book. Um, why can't I write a book? And I got together with my neighbor, Dave, <laughs> middle school. And we started thinking, thinking about dragons and, you know, all that cool Dungeons and Dragons-y stuff. And um, I think we got, like, we had the old-fashioned typewriter, you know? Uh, hunt and peck with the ribbon that gets bunched up and the whole thing. Um, of course, neither of us knew how to type. I still don't. I'm, but I am a master of the two-finger peck. But I digress. Dave and I got uh, maybe a couple of paragraphs in and then we were like, eh, this is work. <laughs> it's like we could imagine faster than we could write. And by the time it went from mind to fingertip, um, it, it, the, the translating what was the images in our heads into words on the page was uh, a little beyond our pay grade in middle school. So we stopped all of that. Um, but the writing bug kept nagging me, and so I kept kept at it later on. I, I really got more into it. Um, but again, here it is, me trying to emulate my dad. I didn't feel like I was competing, but, um, I mean, if I have to be Freudian about it, probably was. Maybe trying to win mom's affection, something along those lines. But see, that type of analysis... Uh, is a, almost a little too speculative for me. Like, it doesn't seem, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like the obvious go-to. It just feels enough to note these flavors from the social to the personal. It's enough just to 
say them out loud, you know, and get them, get them all out there and then see, okay, what is this, this drive to be something, this drive? Well, one thing is once you see that it is both social and personal, that it's in the culture, it's embedded in the culture, it's embedded in your own upbringing and therefore in your parents and in their parents. I mean, certainly um, my grandparents were uh, very motivated people. I mean, my grandmother was a, a teacher for many years. And in fact, she taught uh, mentally handicapped children. And uh, my grandfather was an avid hunter and sportsman and outdoorsman, so much so that when he couldn't do it anymore in old age, he just shut down mentally. You know, that like that was he was so over identified with that that he didn't not want to be that anymore. He didn't want to make that change either in old age or out of self or anything. So uh I think it drove him to dementia personally. Um where he just kept telling himself the same the same old stories of his life over and over again until that was all he could repeat until he was just babbling the same stuff. Um, because he was so upset that he couldn't be the outdoorsman he wanted to be anymore. And he just got lost in his own mind. Um, and then on my, that's my mother's side. And on my father's side, uh, my grandparents both owned a restaurant, the Horseshoe Restaurant in uh, New Hampshire, Concord, I think. They lived in Concord. So it may have been in Concord that this restaurant existed, I think. Um, but anyway, so they owned the horseshoe restaurant for a time and, um, my grandfather on my dad's side was from Greece and, you know, he was of that old school generation where you come to America and you want to try to fit in because of the racism, which, um, isn't something that you fight against. It's something that you feel badly about yourself. You feel inferior because you are not American in America and people recognize that. So, um, he fought tooth and nail to be somebody and, um, fought against himself to be somebody. And perhaps ultimately that drove him mad too, in some way, as he was a very psychologically confusing person. <laughs> um, I know he was also an angry man. I don't know if he had al uh, alcoholism uh, going too. I'm not sure. So ambition, if we look at it, um, it's not my ambition. It's not your ambition. If you, if you deconstruct yourself this way, you see, oh, wait a minute. This is, this is just what we are. This is what we erroneously call human nature. It's not so much human nature as it is the nature of the self. All of these selves that want to be somebody. I mean, this is what happens when you have a dualistic outlook. That is to say, when you recognize the separation of things, the individuality of things, but not the oneness and sameness and interrelated nature of one. Uh, when it's all individual stuff, then they're all, we're all competing and we're all, uh, trying to be someone and we're all trying to live and live on 
which is why we create heavens, right? To live on. You want to be a star in the heavens and on the silver screen. And of course, now it's even worse. Nowadays, we've got... Um, it used to be that people wanted to create something. Now they want to be it. I mean, it is sort of uh, TV and movies and the online world have become a substitute for the oneness that underlines our sense of duality. Um, meaning that we used to want to create and be characters on TV and in movies and now we want to be it. We want to be as one with the media, uh, regardless of our talent, <laughs> right? Like everyone wants to be a YouTube star. Everyone wants to be a podcast star. Everyone wants to be famous or recognized or heard in a public way. Whether we have something to say or not, it's just the fact of it is the currency of the day. And this is a natural, a natural push, a natural product of the self in denial of its, uh, of its underlying true nature. It's just an inevitability. And so here we are. In fact, I'm surprised that virtual reality hasn't uh, overtaken us as the next big thing, the way we keep telling ourselves it will in sci-fi. It seems like a natural a natural next step that should have happened already to be immersed in and as the media, except that then you're not special anymore, right? Unless you can find a way to make people special in that world too, in which case, why bother at all? <laughs> if you're just going to recreate this society in an, you know, in, in a media way, you know, you might as well terraform Mars to go, and pollute and destroy Mars. It's the same thing. It's like, why would you... It sounds good in theory. <laughs> it doesn't sound good in theory. I kid. Um, but anyway, you see what I'm talking about, I think. Uh, these issues that we all have, we all have them. So even as we search for our, our specialty and our specialness... Uh, we're not special. When you really look at it, there is no uniqueness here. We're, we all suffer by varying degrees from the same self-afflictions. And it's only to the degree that we wake up out of them by understanding them. Because once you understand them, they, they don't control you, right? The, the reason they control you is because they're unconscious. But the moment they become conscious and they touch the light of day, that's it. So to the degree that, that you can chip away at yourself through understanding the self is the degree to which you truly become autonomous. You truly become one. You truly become the individual. Not the individual put together by time and thought. Not the individual projected by the brain to seek meaning in life. But the meaning itself. Of course, meaning is always there. Truth is always there. There is such a thing as absolute truth, which transcends and includes us. It's, which is scary because we want truth to be truths. We want everyone to have their own truth. We all want to speak our own truth, right? But that's what we're doing. That's what selves do. But transcending and including the self 
is our truer nature, is the very consciousness that we both seek and are repulsed by because it's antithetical to the seeker. It requires the death of the seeker, the death of self, not the furtherance of self, not adding on to the self, not running into an ambition, which is why at the end of your career, there's still a hole in you, still a hole in your heart. You're still trying to fill yourself. You're still bored and trying to do things. Run to or from another occupation or preoccupation. All of life is a distraction. And in that distraction, we create rules. And those rules say, this is a distraction. This isn't. This is not worth your time. This is. But all of that is a distraction. Keeping you from your core nature. And so what's required is the death of self and peeling away the layers of the self, understanding the self is that death. And so in terms of oneness, we must be that which we seek. We cannot add it on to us. We can't be like many little gods running around with powers or creating our own reality or that ain't it. Not to say it won't work that way for you sometimes, but um, that ain't it. That's still within the machinations of the self, of time, and a conversation that is broader than this podcast. So I urge you to join me at OurUndoing.com for that broader conversation if you wish to have it. www.OurUndoing.com Either way, let's keep chipping away at ourselves. Let's just keep understanding ourselves without judgment and understanding those in our lives without judgment and the machinations of society without judgment. And let's just see what happens at the end of it. Who do we become when we completely understand ourselves? That's what this podcast is. Let's get to work because frankly, it's the only job worth doing.